Amen. We're going to go ahead and continue on in the book of Hebrews. We're going to be going through chapter 2 today. Um, As we talked about last week, this is the book of a lot of unknowns. We don't know who wrote it, who it was written to, or uh, the specific catalyst for why it was written, but we do know it's got some good stuff in it. And it has a lot of stuff that actually does a great job of explaining the relationship between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, and the reason, actually, we're going to look a lot today on the importance of why Jesus had to become a man to become the perfect sacrifice for us. And the truth is, is the author is going to continue today, just as he did last week, and make the argument that Jesus is actually superior to the angels. And you know, the interesting thing to me is, is that I guess there must have been an argument going on at that time, thinking that Jesus was, was not. You know, we look at it now and we're like, well, duh, we get it. But apparently there was still some teaching that had to go on. And, and sometimes I think we also forget how good we have it. You know, a lot of people are like, man, I wish I would have lived back then. You would see my faith now. If I lived with Jesus, you would see how faithful I was. You would see how. But the truth is we have more today than they had back then. We have it all written down. We have hindsight. We've seen the history. We saw what happened. We weren't living in it. And the reason why I know you'd have just as much trouble while you, if you were being right there with him is look at Peter. Peter walked with Jesus, and as soon as Jesus was taken, he began to deny him. The truth is, we have it better today because we have the word written down. But today we're going to really deal with this idea that Jesus is superior to angels. And and one of the things the author is going to point out is that that even though that uh, as a human, Jesus was made lower than angels for a little while, that this actually wasn't a negative. This wasn't a bad thing. This wasn't some some, uh, way to drag Jesus down, but it was actually a necessity in order for him to be the sacrifice that he needed to be for us, to be the perfect sacrifice for sins. Because the reality is, is that to be a, uh, an acceptable sacrifice for us, he had to be like us. He had to experience the things that we experienced. And what I mean by that is Jesus suffered. Jesus uh, experienced temptation. Jesus experienced sadness and hurt. And, he, and all of those things even experienced anger. One of my favorite jokes is people say that, uh, you know, we should always ask, what would Jesus do? And apparently, getting angry and flipping over tables is an acceptable option sometimes. <laughs> but the truth is, is, he had to experience what we were going through in order to be the acceptable sacrifice for us. And because he did, he was able to be a well-pleasing sacrifice to God. He was finally able to sit at his right hand and say, it is finished. Amen. So let's go ahead and get started. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 1 says, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. The first thing that the author starts with in this chapter is therefore. Apparently John found something more interesting than my preaching. He's just going to fire up some YouTube videos over there or something. Want to borrow my headphones? I got you. Hallelujah. First thing we notice is the author starts with therefore. And uh, in order to know kind of where this whole section is going is we need to understand where he's coming from, what this therefore refers to. And really, it's referring to most of the last chapter. Uh, Not the first paragraph of it, but thereabouts when he starts talking about the superiority of Jesus to angels. That's what he's talking about. He's saying, therefore, since Jesus is, is... the, the supreme over angels, and actually we also learn that Jesus is victorious over all of his enemies. Since we've just learned that, therefore, we need to start paying closer attention to what we have heard. 
Because the truth is, is Jesus is supreme, even over angels, even over these, these beings that, that back then, they, they considered to be higher than them, and, and uh, uh, you know, angels were, were just under God. But the reality is, is that they're making the argument, that, that he's making the argument that Jesus is supreme, and, and I think, you know, like I said, when we look back in hindsight, we can see that, we're like, well, of course he is, that makes sense. But because of that, we're given both an encouragement and a warning. And the encouragement is this, that, hey, you need to pay closer attention. He's encouraging us to pay closer attention. We're going to see in later chapters in the book of Hebrews, actually in, in Hebrews chapter 5, we're going to see that the, uh, the, the audience here has become a little dull of hearing. And this is what he says in Hebrews 5, chapter 11 through 12. About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. See, the problem they were running into is they had heard what they needed to hear, but they weren't paying attention. So listen, you guys need to pay closer attention because when they don't, when we don't, and this is a good uh, encouragement for us as well because when we're not paying closer attention, when we're just kind of letting it go on one ear or out the other, or we're just kind of picking out bits and pieces that we want, we're missing the point. We're missing a great deal of what God wants for us. And we're missing a great deal of what God intended for us when we do these things. The truth is, church, we need to be careful not to be dull of hearing, not pick and choose. We need to make sure that we're paying attention to what we've heard. Because I'm sure you've known people that at one time were strong in their walk with God, but then they begin to, to not pay attention to certain things and their life begins to slip. And then all of a sudden you look at them and you realize wow, they look just like their neighbors who aren't Christians at all. They don't, we don't look any different if we're not careful. And we should be different. And here's the thing. We're given a warning. Because if we don't pay attention, there's the chance that we could drift away from it. <clears throat> we could drift away from what we've been taught. I just said that. We've probably all seen people who have done that very thing. And there's been a lot of Things said about once saved, always said, always saved. There's, this, there's a couple ideas around it. But one of the ideas that I hear sometimes is that as, as long as somebody goes ahead and says the sinner's prayer and they get saved, then they can live their life however they want to from then on out, and, and they're still saved. And uh, I just don't think that's true. I don't think the Bible supports that. Here's, why would we get warnings about being able to drift away if it wasn't possible to drift away? The truth is, there's many places in the Bible that talks about this. We're going to see more in the book of Hebrews. We're going to see uh, the book of Romans talks about it. There's a lot of places where it points to this idea that, that we have to remain in the faith. We can't drift away. And I don't know about you, but I don't ever want to find myself in a position where I could be drifting away. To miss out on the reality of what God wants for me. Because that's the first step. The first step is you begin to, to miss out on, on the, the promises and the reality of what God wants for your life. And if you're not careful, you can just get up and walk away completely. Matter of fact, the Bible says in the last days that many, not just a few, but many, are going to walk away from their faith. <laughs> but the, the good news is, is that if we pay attention to what the word says if we let the word uh, get root in our heart so that it can grow find some fertile soil if we can if we can let that happen we don't have to worry about drifting away the good news is that if you keep your eyes on jesus 
you're good. It's when we let them drift away that we start running in to problems. So church, if we just make sure we pay attention, that's, if you get nothing else out of this today, just pay attention. Of course, if you don't get anything else out of this today, you might not be paying attention. So I would go ahead and pay attention. Amen? Hallelujah. And then he goes on in chapter 2, verses 2 through 4, it says, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how should we escape if we neglect to such a great salvation? It's a question you should write down and think about. How should we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and then it was attested to us by those who heard. And while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. The main reason you should pay attention and not drift away is because what you have heard is reliable. What you've heard is reliable. You can put your trust in what the Word of God has to say. And he says here, and you remember this argument is that Jesus is greater than the angels. But the message that we've heard from my pointer, next week I'll have it back. Then the message declared by angels was still known to be reliable. He says the message from the declared by the angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. If that message was reliable, that the message from the angels who are lower than Jesus, was reliable, then we can know that the message heard from Jesus being greater than the angels is more reliable than what they had to say. And this message that he's talking about is this great salvation that we have to be careful not to neglect. We have to be careful to pay attention and not drift away from. Well, we can know it is reliable because it's Jesus is the one who said it. You know, some of the things that I, I love about the Bible, because the way my brain works, my head works like an engineer. And, and math equations come. And one of my, my, my favorite equations in math is just a simple one, but it's uh, um, uh, if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. It's a simple thing. And the, the, the reason I like is I think about a lot of this stuff. You can talk about it when it talks about uh, the Word was God and the Word was with God, and then the Word became flesh. Well, if the Word was God and then the Word became flesh, then the flesh was God, right? A equals B, B equals C. There's a lot of stuff in the Bible that fits this simple equation. And here's another one of these. If the, the angels are reliable, and if Jesus is greater than the angels, then of course Jesus has to be reliable as well. The reality is, is that the Bible was written for people as dumb as me to understand. You know, I may miss some of the, the finer points of doctrine, but I'm not missing this great salvation. That was made for anybody to understand, amen? And that's the thing, is, is that Jesus is the one that said it. So that alone is enough. It's just like, uh, did you guys ever see the movie The Knight's Tale? I think I've talked about this movie a lot up here. One of my favorite movies. And uh, it's got uh, King Richard, I think. And the whole story is about this guy who's, who's not a knight, but he, he was serving a knight. And the, his master died, so he put on his, his armor and begins to play as this knight. And he's, he's doing really well. He's winning tournaments. Anyway, he gets found out that he's not a knight. And uh, he gets put up in the stocks. And uh, people are all mad at him, and they're throwing fruit at him. But his, his crew, the people that were with him, 
the people that served him in this, they're there and they're defending him and they got sticks out and they're trying to fight everybody out. So King Richard shows up and he basically talks about the character of this man and he says, so my scribes, my researchers have went and found evidence that he is actually a knight. And because it's my word, it bears no contestation. He said, because it was my word, there's not a single person alive that can contest what I've just said. When Jesus speaks, it's like that. When he speaks, there's not a person alive that can test what he just said. But even so, if that wasn't enough, we still have those. See, this message of salvation was declared first by the Lord in verse 3, and then it says, and then it was attested by those who heard. So not only did he say it, but then it was attested by the disciples who heard the message, just in case you weren't convinced because Jesus said it, which you should be, by the way. But then there's people that were with him that attested to it, and on top of that... God also bore witness in verse, verse 4 by signs and wonders. Now, I don't know if you know this, but him rising from the dead should have been your first clue <laughs> that it was the truth. You know, there, there are so many who would argue that, and I'm getting all kinds of off track, but there's people that would argue that that's impossible. You know, I don't believe the Bible because nobody's ever risen from the dead, which is arguable. But... <laughs> As if, you know, that just doesn't happen. People don't rise from the dead. It's got to be a false story. But here's what I ask you. Christianity was such a threat to the Roman Empire, to the Jews at the time, such a threat to all of them. All they had to do to destroy Christianity in its infancy was produce the body of Jesus. And trust me, there were plenty of them that wanted to produce that body to destroy But it never happened. Why? Because he actually rose from the dead. You're right, it doesn't happen all the time. That's why they call it a miracle. That's why right here, God bore witnesses by signs and wonders and various miracles. When God rose Jesus from the dead, that was him verifying and attesting that Jesus was his son and was an acceptable sacrifice. So we have all these things that are evidence for this message, this great salvation. And if even the angels were, were reliable, how much more so is Jesus going to be? And if he's more reliable, how can we neglect that great salvation? And that's the thing that, that a lot of people don't like to talk about. The angels spoke a reliable message, but every transgression and every disobedience received a just retribution. How much more so if we neglect the great salvation of Jesus Christ? Do we think that somehow if, if the words weren't true from angels, that they received that just retribution, that when we ignore salvation, that we're not going to get just retribution as well? There are many people that would argue. They say, you know what? A good God wouldn't send anybody to hell. I agree. <laughs> and he doesn't. The fact is, is he made a way for everybody to not go to hell. Jesus set aside his deity, lived on earth as a man, gave his life up so that we would just put our trust in him and we can be set free from the bondage of hell. We never have to deal with it as long as you don't neglect that great salvation. He made a way for all of us to not have to go to hell. And the only way that you do go to hell is if you don't pay attention. If you don't pay attention. William Wilberforce said this. He said, you may choose to look the other way, 
but you can never say again that you did not know. There's going to be a lot of people, I think, that are going to stand before God and say, wait a minute, I didn't know. And he's like, no, you did. You've been told. The truth is, in America, everybody's heard. And just as the message that the angels spoke was reliable and every just retribution happened, if you neglect this great salvation, you will receive your just. And that's important. It's just. It's deserved. You will receive that retribution for your sin and disobedience. Amen? And then he continues on in verses 5 through 8, the beginning part of 8. You know, how many of you guys know that uh, the, the verses were added later? The verses aren't in the Greek. Sometimes they put verse numbers in the weirdest places. Just look at your Bible right now. They probably have it paragraphed out, and this, this, this verse splits like two sections. It's kind of weird. Anyway, that's why I have 8a. It's the first part of verse 8. It says, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. <clears throat> so now the, the author is going to continue to hammer home this idea of the supremacy of Christ over angels. And actually over much of Hebrews, and particularly a lot in this chapter, we're going to see the importance that Jesus had to become a man, even though it may have seemed like a weakness. The truth is, it was actually beneficial for us <laughs> that he became a man. And it was actually necessary to restore us, restore men to the place that God created us to be in. Just in this chapter alone, we're going to go through and see how... Uh, Jesus' humanity allowed him to restore the dominion that man had lost. And when I speak of the dominion, I'm talking about uh, in, in the, the, the Garden of Eden, men was given dominion over the entire earth, the fish, the birds. I mean, we were given dominion over everything, and we've lost that sense. It allows him, as a human, to bring other brothers and sisters to him, with him to glory. It allows him to defeat sin and death, effectively hamstringing the devil's authority and ability to operate in the life of a believer. And it also allows him to be a high priest that can relate to us because he's been tempted in every way that we have. <clears throat> so the author says, it was not to angels, it was to Jesus, not to angels, that God subjected the world to come. And actually, the truth is, is God subjected the world to us, to man, even before the angels. He says that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. This which we are speaking appears to re uh, refer to the world that was talked about in, in, in chapter 1, where it's talking about um, uh, the world in which Jesus is completely victorious. All of his enemies are made as a footstool, a footstool under his feet. That's what it says, this... This world to come is what he's talking about. And the thing that he really wants to point out, the author's pointing out, is not the angels that are going to be in charge. It's going to be Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is, is supreme over the angels. You'll notice this theme throughout the whole thing. And then in verse 6 through 8, it actually quotes from Psalm 8, 4 through 6. It says, what is man that you are, this is Psalm 8, 4 through 6, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands and have put all things 
under his feet. If you read this entire psalm, and I would encourage you to do so, you'll see that David is going to be, uh, he's kind of in awe of the fact that God has shared his power and glory with man. That's the whole thing is like, who is man that you're mindful of and that you would even make him just a little lower than the heavenly beings? We were to rule over the earth, have complete dominion over the earth, over the beasts of the field and the, the birds in the air. We were given dominion over all of that. We were actually created lower than angels, lesser than angels. But God gave us far greater privilege than he ever gave the angels. He gave us the, the ability to share in his dominion and his rule over this earth. None of the angels were given that ability, that authority. Just it was given to men. And we screwed it up, as men ought to do. And Jesus is coming to restore what was lost to us. Amen. Now in Hebrews 2.8b, verse, uh, through verse 9, it says, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, you'll notice that the psalm is David referring to men, but now the author is saying this is referring to Jesus in the world to come. And he says, speaking now of Jesus, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. But at present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him for who a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So right now, we see that this earth is not subject to men, but there's a time coming when Jesus, in verse 9, says, look, now in putting everything in subject, subjection to him, to us, to men, we don't have anything. I mean, we know that we don't have the earth is rejection to us right now, right? We look around, and, and how many of you have successfully told a, a bird to do what you want it to do? Unless you spent some time training it, they don't listen. The earth isn't subjection to us at all. The truth is, is, is we can't even put ourselves in subjection half the time. But if you look at Jesus when you walk the earth, right? Verse 9, but we see him who for a little while, now he's referring to Jesus, who's lower than angels, Namely, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So we're in a situation where we've lost that subjection, we've lost that dominion, but now we see Jesus who's coming to restore it. And even when Jesus walked the earth, we saw it. You see, we can't tell the fish to fill a net, but Jesus could. We can't look at our tax bill and tell the fish to bring up the coin in its mouth to pay our bills, but Jesus could. Or what about when Jesus was being tempted in the desert for 40 days? This is the animals ministered to him. Jesus, when he walked the earth, all the things that were supposed to be subject to us were subject to him because he was restoring that for us. Christ regained man's dominion. And according to Ephesians 1, 20 through, 20, uh, through 23, 1, 20 through 23, all things are subjected to him. Ephesians 1, 20 through 23 reads that that worked he in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So the reality is, is that, that 
Christ's rule and authority was set up for him, and he's, bringing, he's giving that back to us. And there comes a point when everything will be put in subjection under his feet, and men will, will finally fulfill the role that we're supposed to fulfill when that is all said and done. And then finally in verse 9, he talks about, we'll see him being crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. The reality is, is Jesus came to die the death that you and I should have died so that we don't have to. Amen? And he is glorified for that. And then in Hebrews verse 2, or sorry, chapter 2, verse 10, it says, For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through their suffering. I'm sorry, through suffering. So in this, in this section, we're going to see the writer use this Greek word, um, I think it's pronounced archegos, for the first time when he's describing Jesus. And you're going to see it used the second time in Hebrews 12, 2, and it says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. So that archegos is the, the word founder. You'll see it translated in different translations anywhere from, uh, in the King James Version, it's referred to as the captain of our faith. Um, you'll see it referred to in another translation as the author. Um, and founder is used quite often. But the idea here is to suggest that Jesus is, is our leader or our originator, um, or like, you know, like it's translated, our, the founder of our faith, of, of, of our salvation. Another way to think about it that fits pretty well in our language would be he's our pioneer. He's the first one. He's the one that started it all. And the thing that you have to stand, understand here is because he's God, it's for just fitting that, that he, speaking of God, for whom and by whom all things exist, God is the one, because he's God, who determines what is necessary to pay for sin. He's the one that's eternal. He's the one that, that determines what is necessary. And it says here that, that uh, God determined that it was... I'm, I'm someone that had to be like us to pay for our sins. This is fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Like I said, because he's God, he determines what's necessary to pay for sin. And in his death, which is what was required for sin, we're going to see that he's bringing many sons to glory. And it's likely referring to that glory that was lost when we were supposed to have dominion over the earth. He's going to be restoring those things to us. And it's interesting because Jesus died for us. If you weren't clear, Jesus had nothing to die himself for. He didn't need a sacrifice for himself. He didn't have to restore himself. He died for us. And then the author says this is fitting because as such, he is the founder or pioneer of our faith and he's been made perfect through suffering which is kind of a weird phrase if you think about it. Because if you're not careful, you can read this quickly and somehow you can think, oh, Jesus wasn't perfect before this? I mean, he's God. Isn't he perfect? But the reality is, is that the author is not talking about uh, some sort of uh, slight immorality. He's not talking that, that he's somehow lacking or inadequate. What he's talking about is that it's an implication that in order to represent us, he has to be like us. So in order to, to die for us, he actually had to suffer and die for He had to go through it like we would go through it. And by suffering, he can give those who suffer the help that we so desperately need because he himself has suffered. 
In other words, Jesus could not have become an adequate savior and high priest for us had he not become man and suffered and died. That's the reason why God planned it out this way. I love looking at how salvation works because the truth is how it works is brilliant. <laughs> like it's so, it's so intricate and brilliant and such a perfect plan because if man would have done it, it would look like every other religion. It would be about us trying to do something to make ourselves right with God. But instead it's about a God who came to us because he knew that we couldn't do it anyway. So he had to make a way. Now, one of the things you could say, well, if he's God, why didn't he just, you know, swipe his hand and sin just goes away? Poof, it's gone. But then we have a, a God who's not being just, who's not being righteous, and, and those are, 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 are his nature. That's his very character. If he stops being those things, he stops being God. So he has to come up with a way to stay true to himself, true to his own nature, yet still somehow set us free. And he does that. By paying the price for us. He comes to earth as a man just like us. Lives just like us. Experiences life just like us. And gives his life as a replacement for ours. So God is still just because there was a payment that still had to be paid. God is still righteous because he didn't let something just go by the wayside. And then on top of that, he didn't just pay for our sins but he gives us a new life inside of us so that not only are we just forgiven, how I many know being forgiven is good, but without the new life, it's worthless. It's why the law didn't fix us because all it did was forgive sins. But Jesus didn't just forgive our sins, he made us brand new. And I don't know, do you think about how brilliant that is? That's one of the, the key evidences for me that, it's, that, it's, that this is the, the, the true religion, the only way to the pathway to, to God is through Jesus is because it's the only one that's different. Every other religion that man comes up with is about us doing something. But this one's different because God actually came to us. Amen? And then in Hebrews 2, 11 through 13, we'll continue on. It says, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell you of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given to me. So what Jesus did by going to the cross is, is he has sanctified us. He has set us apart for God. And as a result, God is our Father, just as He is Jesus' Father. That's what it says here. For He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. It's speaking of the Father. We have the same Father. Before Jesus, God was sometimes referred to as Father, but it wasn't referred to as Father like in a familiar, familial sense. God was considered Father and really not all that often if you read the Old Testament, but when it was, it's more of a broad, like he's the father as in the creator of the earth. Not a personal father, not a familial father. That's why when Jesus came and said that God is my father, that's why they got all up in arms. He wasn't just saying like God is the father because he created everything. Jesus was saying, no, God is my father. As in he begot me. And, and the problem was is that they understood what that meant. That meant that he was calling himself to be equal to God. So before this, like I said, God wasn't referred to a father in a familial sense, but more just in a general, he's the creator of all things. And that's different now because 
Jesus has sanctified us. He set us apart and he has grafted us into the family. We've been adopted in. That's why he says that he is the first of many brethren. He is the first of many. We are brought in as brothers and sisters and we can call God our father. He is our one source. And because he has sanctified us, because he's brought us in, he's not ashamed to call us brothers. And the author uses a couple of Old Testament references to, to talk about this. The first one here in chapter 12 is Psalm twenty-two, twenty-two. It says, I will tell you of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. And this is, traditionally, this is the, the Messiah speaking. And after he gave his life for us, this is now true. He's telling us the Father's name. Because we're his brothers and we've been grafted in. And then in verse 13 are quotations from Isaiah chapter 8 that you can go look up. And once again, it's just reiterating that we are fellow sons and daughters with Christ. We're part of the family. You know, that's good news to be part of the family. And we get to call him Abba Father, which was referred, that, that Abba was reserved for just people that were actually in the family. But we're, we're adopted in, but with the same privileges as one who was born into the family. Amen. And in verses 14 through 15, it says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Since we are of flesh and blood, Jesus took on flesh and blood. This wasn't just some sort of happenstance that actually served an important purpose. And I've been talking about it a little bit, but he had to, to become like us to partake in the same things that we partake in. He had to go through the same experiences, temptation, emotions. What's that new uh, movie about Jesus that's coming out? I think it's on Amazon and people have been talking about it a lot lately. The Chosen. Somebody was watching that recently and and uh, they said that inside that, they show this section where Jesus is sitting around with the disciples and he's, he's laughing and making jokes and they're, they're doing it. And he said, did Jesus do that? Did Jesus laugh? Because how many know that that's not in the Bible, right? The, the authors of this who are writing down Jesus' life, um, you don't have the entirety of Jesus' life in the few books of the Bible that we have. So obviously they are, are elaborating a little bit, but, they're, but I told them, I said, well, I would imagine he does because he's just like us. He was 100% man. He cried. He got angry. He laughed. Now, that particular time he was sitting around the campfire telling that joke, yeah, he probably didn't tell that specific joke. <laughs> he didn't laugh at that specific joke. That was somebody putting in, but they're, they're they're describing the life of Jesus being just like us. Of course he laughed. He was like us in every single way with only one, I almost said minor difference. I guess it's not a minor difference, just a major difference. He did not sin. That's the only difference. And this, him coming to live like this, through death allowed him to destroy the power of the devil over us. That's why that we're no longer a slave to sin or in bondage to death because that ability of the devil to have us in slavery and fear over that stuff has been taken away. If you're paying attention and you're not drifting away, you have no reason to be afraid of death because it's really just the beginning. 
But because of his death, because he was just like us when he died, then we are free from slave, the slavery of death, the bondage of sin. Because he was just like us, his sacrifice was sufficient for us, and we've been completely delivered as a result. Amen? And then in verse 16 he says, For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of, angel, of Abraham. Once again, this, this, this comparison of, of angels and Jesus and why they're different and how Jesus is su- superior. But the thing that the author's pointing out now here is, is that this is why Jesus was not like an angel. In many ways, you could argue that being completely spirit, being completely an angel, would have some benefits. But he couldn't be like that because he didn't come to help the angels. Jesus didn't come to die for the angels. If he would have came to die for the angels, he would have had to have been like an angel. But instead, he came for us, the sons of Abraham. He came for us. So he had to be just like us. And because of that, his help was perfect and complete. Amen? And then we'll go ahead and finish up here, verses 17 and 18. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, not just some respects, in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Tempted? Tempted. Jesus was just like us. The angels aren't. Angels could never identify with the struggles that we go through, with the weaknesses that we have, with the temptations that we deal with. Angels can't identify with that. Matter of fact, the scripture says the angels actually watch us with eagerness because we do have this great privilege of a God who came for us and has given us salvation. But they could never relate to us. But Jesus can. Because he went through it all. He understands what you're going through. When you go and fall on your knees and begin to cry out to God and cry out to Jesus, he understands. He's felt pain. He's felt loss. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is when it says Jesus wept. The shortest verse in the Bible. And it's when he raises, right before he raises Lazarus. And it's such an interesting story to me because that was Jesus' plan the whole time was to raise Lazarus. Matter of fact, he says, hey, Lazarus is not doing well. You should go see him. And Jesus is like, nah, we're going to stay here for a few more days. And when he shows up, Lazarus has been dead for a few days. The King James Version says he's been dead long enough that he stinketh. And Jesus comes back. Now, he doesn't just have an epiphany. Go, oh, wait, I can raise him from the dead. That was his plan the whole time. He knew what he was doing. But it says he wept. Well, that doesn't make any sense. If you knew that the outcome was going to be okay, why would he weep? But it's because he empathized. I cannot say the word right now. Empathize. There we go. Wow. We're going to cut that part out of the recording. If this wasn't live, we would. Hallelujah. Empathized. I just had a brain fart on that one and a tongue twister. But he empathized with those who were around him because he, you know, literally, and quite literally, he felt their pain. <laughs> you know, he wasn't crying 
for Lazarus. He's crying for the people that were around him that were hurting. So Jesus has felt pain. He's felt suffering. He spent 40 days in the wilderness and was tempted. He's felt temptation. Matter of fact, we're going to see later on in the book of Hebrews that not only was he tempted, but he was tempted in every way that man was tempted. He had it worse than us because not a single person in here has been tempted in every way. We have certain ways that we're tempted, but not every way. But Jesus dealt with everyone and was victorious. So he understands. And because of that, he can be a merciful and faithful high priest making propitiation for our sins because he understands our sins. He also understands, like I said, temptation. You know, it's one thing, and I wonder... When I keep thinking about the brilliance of God's plan, can you imagine if this didn't happen? Can you imagine how many would stand before God in failure and argue, well, you don't even know what it's like. How could you know what it's like? You're God. I imagine people would. But now they can't because he did. He knows what it's like. And he gave his life for us. So we have Jesus Christ who's both merciful and faithful as a high priest and he's also understands temptation because he himself has been tempted and the reality is is that he can never fail in his priestly duties for us because he was perfected that's what the scripture said he was perfected and he made the necessary sacrifice for sins so that we might be reconciled to god even though he didn't have to reconcile himself to god even though he himself did not need to die. He died for us. So church, I just want you to, as you read this, just be encouraged that he knows what you're going through. He's there for you. And be encouraged that even in spite of knowing what you're going through, he's not ashamed to call you brothers and sisters. Amen? Amen. Let's go ahead and bow our heads.